Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is called Resurrection Implications. Richard Hayes, one of the most well-known theologians of our age, who served as the professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School for many years, in this lecture explains the incredible effect Jesus' resurrection has on theology and practice. His lecture divides into two parts. One, a proper New Testament understanding of the resurrection requires a robust affirmation of the resurrection of the body, and two, resurrection of the body is a sign of God's power invading creation, and therefore, preaching resurrection requires embodying resurrection ethics as well. So in other words, the first part pertains to the literal resurrection of the body and the theology that goes behind that, and the second part gets into the practical side of being part of the resurrection people. This is a message that I felt really helped me understand the importance of resurrection a lot better, and I think it will really help you as well. So without further ado, here is Richard Hayes. The resurrection of Jesus has turned the world upside down. And yet the world keeps trying to pretend that it is not so. The world keeps looking desperately for some way to set things back in order, as though God had not raised Jesus from the dead. The world keeps seeking some other way to cope with the scandal of death. Those of you who are baseball fans, and perhaps some of you who are not, will have followed with dismay the tawdry soap opera surrounding the death of Ted Williams, the great Boston Red Sox slugger. For those of you who might have missed it, here's the story in brief. Williams' legally executed will, written in 1996, clearly specifies that he wanted his body to be cremated. But after his death last summer, two of his children, John Henry Williams and Claudia Williams, produced an oil-stained scrap of paper, allegedly signed by their father in November 2000 in which he assented to a pact that the three of them would have their bodies after death frozen and preserved, a technique known as cryonics, in the hope that medical science could someday bring him back to life. Here is what was written on the paper, quote, John Henry, Claudia, and Dad all agree to be put in biostasis after we die. This is what we want to be able to be together in the future, even if it is only a chance, end quote. This document had not been publicly divulged to anyone prior to William's death, and it had allegedly been left in the trunk of John Henry's car for several months, hence the oil stains. Acting on the basis of this newly released uh, uh, secret pact, John Henry arranged to have the body of his father flown to Arizona and frozen, hung upside down in a steel tank full of liquid nitrogen at minus 325 degrees. All this was done over the strenuous objection of Ted Williams' eldest daughter, Bobby Joe Williams Farrell, who accused John Henry of forging the dubious note and scheming, ultimately, to sell their father's DNA for profit. John Henry, on the other hand, insisted that near the end of his life, Ted Williams had changed his mind and embraced the idea of cryonics. In a statement published in the Boston Globe, he justified his actions by appealing to faith in scientific progress 
and the hope that science might eventually conquer death. Here's what he said, quote, Our father was not a religious man. The faith that many people place in God, we place in science and other human endeavors, end quote. Of course, since the Williams family is a family of Red Sox fans, perhaps it's fitting that they should place a wistful faith in yet another hopeless cause. <laughs> in this pathetic little vignette, we see the natural human aversion to death, a raging against the dying of the light, fused together with the ridiculous human hubris that would rather place trust in a hypothetical future science than in what God has already done and promised. To believe in a non-existent science that might someday resuscitate frozen corpses allows the world to continue on as it is, frozen solid in the assumption of human autonomy. To believe that God has already broken the power of death, on the other hand, would be to introduce a dangerous instability to the equations and bargains that govern our day-to-day -day lives. By raising the man Jesus who had been given the death penalty by the duly constituted civil authorities, by raising this executed man from the dead, God turned the world upside down. The resurrection upsets the world because it gives us a glimpse of a truth more fundamental than common sense, a glimpse of a world no longer ruled by the power of death. When the first Christian missionaries began their work of proclamation in the ancient Mediterranean world, the story they told struck their hearers as strange and disturbing. In Acts 17, we read an account of the resistance that Paul and Silas met when they began preaching in Thessalonica. They went to the synagogue and began expounding scripture to demonstrate that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. Initially, they attracted a few followers, but it didn't take long for a backlash to materialize. Before long, there was an angry mob at the door of Jason, their host. Not finding Paul and Silas, the mob dragged Jason and some other believers before the city authorities, shouting, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there is another king named Jesus. That's Acts 17, 6 and 7. What was so disturbing about the message of Paul and Silas? Clearly, this posse of agitators was not alarmed by a message about how individuals might secure otherworldly immortality. Rather, the message that the apostles preached posed a threat to public order. They were turning the world upside down because they were proclaiming that Jesus, who had been put to death by the authority of Caesar, had been raised from the dead. And therefore, Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. Remember, in the first century of our era, the imperial propaganda machine was pressing the Roman emperor's claim to hold universal sovereignty. I cite just one example. A first century inscription acclaims, quote, divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world, end quote. Against this background, it can be no coincidence that the apostolic speeches in Acts repeatedly interpret the resurrection of Jesus as a definitive sign that Jesus has now been enthroned above every other authority. For example, Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2 climaxes 
by declaring that the resurrection of Jesus proves that all human rulers are now reduced to subservience at his feet. He has reclaimed the title of Lord, which Caesar had falsely usurped. And he is the Christ, the anointed king for whom God's people had hoped, the one who will bring the reign of God's justice on earth. It's not hard to see why this sort of claim sounded like turning the world upside down. Indeed, it sounded like treason against the empire. The thing that is harder to understand, though, is why the Jewish crowd in Thessalonica becomes so agitated about a perceived affront to the authority of Caesar. After all, as Jews, didn't they share Israel's ancient hope? for God to raise up a Davidic ruler once again and to place the other nations under his feet? Apparently not. They had made their peace with the Pax Romana. They were comfortable with the lives they knew. Talk of resurrection threatened to destabilize their accommodations. But it's by no means Jews only who wanted the present order of things to continue without interruption. Two chapters later in Acts, Luke tells the story of a riot among the pagan silversmiths in Ephesus. They dragged two of Paul's companions into the great public amphitheater. If any of you have ever been to the archaeological site at Ephesus, that enormous amphitheater is still there to be witnessed. And for two hours, they protested against the Christian preachers by chanting over and over, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Why were they staging this public demonstration? Because they realized that Paul's message about Jesus' resurrection threatened to depose all other gods and therefore to ruin their business of selling silver idols of Artemis. The resurrection of Jesus is not good news for business. Rather, it's the kind of unsettling news that might cause the Dow Jones average to take a plunge. In any case, these three stories, the Williams family squabble, the mob action in Thessalonica, and the silversmith's riot in Ephesus, show in different ways how Jesus' resurrection challenges the way the world conducts its affairs. Indeed, the message of resurrection upsets the world so much that the world will go to outrageous lengths to suppress or supplant that message. Perhaps that explains in part why our proclamation of the resurrection in the church is so halting. We are up against serious resistance, resistance from outside forces and resistance from within ourselves. But before we can analyze the crunch points, the points where the resurrection of Jesus overturns the world we know, we must first take a step back to clarify what the classical Christian teaching about resurrection actually is. So this lecture falls into then two main parts. In the first part, I want to argue that the understanding of the resurrection in terms of the New Testament requires a robust affirmation of the resurrection of the body. Resurrection of the body. And the second part of the lecture, I will suggest to you that resurrection of the body is a sign of God's redemptive power invading and restoring creation, and therefore preaching resurrection cannot be separated from proclaiming the specific practices in which the power of resurrection is already becoming embodied. So first, resurrection of the body, and then secondly, what are the implications of resurrection for our ethical practices in the church? First of all, the resurrection of the body. Some work of clarification is necessary because over time, Christians have become muddled about the meaning of resurrection. The early Christians proclaimed that God had broken the power of death 
by raising Jesus bodily from the grave. Therefore, the New Testament writers and early Christian creeds looked forward to resurrection of the body as the consummation of God's redemptive action in the world. Yet in our time, few Christian doctrines are more neglected than this one. Many devout Christians expect their souls to go to heaven when they die without realizing how little the Bible says about any such idea and without understanding what the church has historically taught about resurrection of the body. Resurrection of the dead is not the same thing as immortality of the soul, though many Christians characteristically confuse them. If we want to understand the conceptual world in which the early Christians preached resurrection, we do well to consider the story of the seven martyred brothers in 2 Maccabees 7. When the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes threatened to cut out their tongues and cut off their hands, one of the brothers stretched forth his hands and said, I got these from heaven, and for the sake of his laws, I disdain them. For from him, I hope to get them back again. I hope to get them back again. The resurrection will restore the body. That is what many Jews believed in the first century. And it is clearly what Jesus' earliest followers understood when they testified that he had been raised from the dead. Yet a confusion between resurrection and disembodied immortality arose very early in the history of the church as Christian preachers moved out from Jewish communities where the gospel was first proclaimed and began addressing the Gentile world. The distinctively Jewish idea of bodily resurrection seemed puzzling and even offensive to many people in Greco-Roman culture, such as the Corinthians to whom Paul wrote. In the first century, Greek thought under the influence of Platonism tended towards dualism. The concrete physical world was seen as an imperfect and corrupted shadow of a non-material reality, and the body was seen as a prison for the soul, as attested in the well-known pun on the words soma and sema, body and tomb. In this cultural setting, it was not long before some people began to reinterpret Christianity as a message about how to escape from the body. Justin Martyr, the great second century Christian apologist, though, thundered against this tendency. This quotation I'm about to read you from him is in my commentary on 1 Corinthians, but I, even if you've read it, I want to repeat it here for, uh, because it so forcefully makes the point. He wrote that there are, quote, some who are called Christians who say there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven. He calls such people, quote, godless, impious heretics, and warns his readers not to be deceived by them. Quote, do not imagine that they are Christians, end quote. In contrast, he insists, quote, I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead, end quote. Justin is simply echoing the apostolic message of the New Testament. When Paul writes in Romans 8 of the present as a time of longing for redemption, he says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Note carefully that he does not say redemption from our bodies, but rather the redemption of our bodies. The difference is enormous and crucial for Christian theology. God the Creator will not abandon what he has created. The doctrine of the resurrection of the body affirms that God will finally redeem creation from its bondage to death and decay. But Paul is very clear that we do not yet see that for which we hope. 
we groan along with the unredeemed creation. This too is part of the truth that Christians must tell as we confront the reality of death. Now American Protestant churches have come to surround death with a sentimental 19th century hymnody and piety that in effect denies the reality of death and the not yet dimension of redemption. When we confront death, we tend to focus on the fate of the individual soul, not on the resurrection of the body, and certainly not on God's restoration of the whole creation. There's a popular gospel hymn, much beloved at least in the southeast. Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. Let's name the truth. This kind of romantic escapism is Gnosticism, not Christianity. What is the alternative? I offer you, with apologies to Ralph Wood, a suggestive passage from J.R.R. Tolkien. Near the end of The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins finds the dwarf king Thorin Oakenshield on his deathbed fatally wounded. Thorin looks up at Bilbo and says, Farewell, good thief. I go now to the halls of waiting to sit beside my fathers until the world is renewed. Until the world is renewed. Though Tolkien is not writing Christian allegory, this brief exchange from the imagined world of Middle-earth faithfully reflects through a glass darkly the Christian vision of resurrection, which claims that God will reclaim, restore, and renew God's creation. I've spent this much time talking about the New Testament's understanding of resurrection because there's so much confusion around these matters. Many funeral services offer an incoherent hodgepodge combining biblical teaching on resurrection with dualistic ideas about the flight of the soul to heavenly bliss, and sometimes also with New Age quasi-Eastern notions that the deceased has not really died, but has simply been merged into nature so that she is now present in the sunset and the gentle rain and so forth. Probably you don't have this in Baptist churches, but in, in my context, this is an issue. It's a matter of urgent importance for our preaching and teaching to resist such corruptions of the gospel by declaring unambiguously the hope of resurrection of the body. But in addition to these kind of sentimental spiritual heresies, the biblical understanding of resurrection faces another powerful source of resistance on a very different front, the front of rationalist materialism. This is the perspective represented by Ted Williams' family. From the point of view of rationalist materialism, God talk is fantasy, and death is simply the end. Any talk of life after death is meaningless, unless it's simply a poetic way of describing how we live on in the memory of those whose lives we have touched. For many people who do not attend churches, and for some who do, scientific materialism frames their worldview. I recently heard a talk given by a distinguished medical researcher at Duke who is seeking to understand the genetic causes of heart disease. At one point in his talk, he offered the following description of his working assumption about human beings, and I quote him verbatim, quote, we are disposable packages designed for the successful transmission of gametes, end quote. In other words, our only purpose in the world is to reproduce ourselves and pass along our genetic material to future generations. I wanted to ask him why, if that is so, he cared so deeply as he obviously did about prolonging the lives of his heart patients long past their reproductive years. 
There was a deep philosophical tension between the scientific materialism that governed his research and the inarticulate human compassion that motivated it. Fortunately, Duke University is not paying him to be a philosopher or a theologian. But this sort of unresolved tension is rampant in our culture. Rationalistic materialism governs public accounts of what is real. Therefore, in this frame of resurrection, I'm sorry, in this frame of reference, resurrection, like all religious language, can only be a metaphorical description of some sort of affective state in our own consciousness. So part of the challenge of preaching resurrection, then, is to reshape the imagination of our hearers by offering an alternative account of reality. Resurrection gives us a new vision of the world in which we live and move and die. Preaching resurrection calls into question the sterility and incoherence of the materialistic worldview, while at the same time, it reshapes our hope and our action in the present time between the times. Now, there's no time to undertake this here. If I had time, I'd love to do a kind of extended study, particularly at this point uh, of Romans 6, to indicate the way in which resurrection pertains not simply to some far out future existence, but the way that it impinges upon and transforms the life of the community in the present time. Because we've been buried by baptism into Christ's death, so also as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul goes on and says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. What would it mean for the church to take this seriously and to consider ourselves in virtue, in, in light of the resurrection, to consider ourselves alive to God? I could give a long list of implications, but the one I want to talk about here today is this, that the resurrection inaugurates a new polis, a new city, a new community. The resurrection creates and shapes the church as a counter-community that challenges the values and politics of the kingdom of this world by giving witness to the life-giving power of God. As Paul puts it in Philippians 3, Christ's people belong to an alternative politiuma. The word means a colony or a political jurisdiction, a community whose life together is destined finally to be conformed to the image of the risen Lord. This is Philippians 3, 20 and 21. That is a threatening state of affairs for a world that would like to have everyone conformed to the common sense values and norms of the empire. In the time that remains here this morning then, in the second part of the lecture, I want to reflect on some of the distinctive practices that characterize this odd new community of people given life, new life, by the resurrection of Jesus. Once the resurrection has overturned the world we used to inhabit, then what? The poet Wendell Berry writes about the practices of resistance that are necessary for us to break out of the world's patterns and embody resurrection life. He is convinced that faithfulness to God requires us to confound the world's expectations, as he explains in a poem called Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Here are the last few lines of Barry's poem. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. 
Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. That's the end of the poem. Practice resurrection. He doesn't mean, of course, that we make resurrection happen. Of all the things we cannot do, that is first on the list. Rather, this is Barry's way of summoning us to participate in the resurrection life that God has set loose upon the world. What are the particular actions through which the power of resurrection is embodied by the community of God's people? What are the practices that serve as a sign to the world of the power of Jesus' resurrection? One could compile a very long list, but for today I must limit myself to four. The first practice of resurrection that I would like to emphasize is peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. In a world torn by violence, the distinctive vocation of Jesus' followers is to renounce violence and seek where there is strife to make peace. No other issue is more urgent. But on hardly any other issue has the church so massively failed to embody the promise of the resurrection. In the wake of the Constantinian settlement, the church has found ways to baptize violence, to construct theories of just war, so-called, that have no basis whatever in the teaching and example of Jesus, and generally to provide rationalizations for violent practices that imitate the Roman crucifiers of Jesus rather than imitating the way of the crucified one. In recent months, these rationalizations have been carried to a remarkable new level. As a president who declares himself a confessing Christian, alas, I'm sorry to say, a Methodist, now blatantly disregards even the minimal traditional just war criteria and prepares to launch an unprovoked, preemptive campaign of war. Whatever violence the world may deem justified, we are called as followers of Jesus to put away our swords, knowing that those who take the sword die by the sword. From Matthew to Revelation, there is a consistent witness against violence and a call to the church to follow the reconciling example of Jesus in accepting suffering rather than inflicting it. Why do I name this, though, as a practice of resurrection? Because by accepting suffering, we proclaim that our trust lies not in Caesar's power to protect us from death through military power, but solely in God's power to raise us up. Thus, we prefigure the peaceable kingdom of God in a world racked by violence. Bearing witness for peace is a practice of resurrection because it is a way of refusing to present our members as instruments of death, to use the language that Paul uses in Romans 6. We refuse that. It is instead a way of presenting our members to God in anticipation of resurrection and the life of the world to come. I observed a dramatic example of this prophetic ministry of practicing resurrection when I spent the spring semester of 1996 on sabbatical in Jerusalem. It was a time of heightened tension between Israelis and Palestinians, or at least we thought so then, although by comparison to what subsequently happened, it seems it was only the beginning of graver troubles. But there had been several terrorist bombings of Israeli buses, particularly on the bus line number 18, 
And the Israeli government had clamped down oppressive security measures on the Palestinian people so that fear and tension were palpable in the air. What could the Christian church do, a tiny minority in a land now inhabited primarily by Jews and Muslims? The Christian peacemaker team, a handful of Christians with roots in the Anabaptist tradition, responded by forming a prayer vigil in which they took turns riding the number 18 bus in Jerusalem, the bus line that had been repeatedly bombed by terrorists, and praying as they rode for peace. They were looking for people to sign up to join them in this dangerous prayer vigil, and I was asked whether I'd like to sign up for a slot of duty. But I said, well, no, I'm working on a very important commentary on 1 Corinthians just now, and I can't take time to do that. But it struck me that what they were doing was a very dramatic gesture of placing their own lives on the line as witnesses for reconciliation and peace. This is the kind of imaginative peacemaking action to which the New Testament calls us. Not coercive action, but witness-bearing. Did the Christian peacemaker team bring violence to a halt in Israel? No, of course not. They may have had some temporary effect in helping to slow the pace of violence, but all you have to do is pick up the newspaper today to see that the flood of violence has overwhelmed their testimony for God's peace just as the flood of violence also overwhelmed Jesus' testimony. Actions like this make sense only in light of the resurrection, only if it is true that God raises the dead. In any case, I would suggest to you that equally imaginative actions are called for now, in a cultural situation where Christians are not a tiny minority but a nominal majority. What would be the effect if the church everywhere would find ways to put their bodies on the line for the way of peace as a witness to the resurrection? Second practice of resurrection, sharing possessions. The sharing of our goods with one another so that there is no needy person among us. Some of you might have seen the cartoon that appeared some time ago in The New Yorker that showed some guys in a bar watching a television market report, something I suppose like CNN's money line. The commentator on the screen was saying, Jitters on Wall Street today over the rumor that Alan Greenspan was reported to have said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think one reason this cartoon tickles us, or tickles me anyway, is because it plays upon an ironic contrast. Many of us hang with great suspense on rumors about what Alan Greenspan might be thinking, while blithely ignoring what Jesus did in fact say on the subject of money. The book of Acts portrays the early church as giving testimony to the resurrection with great power, precisely because they were sharing their possessions in such a way that there was no needy person among them. Take a quick look at Acts 4. I know there are, I guess there are pew Bibles here. This is worth looking at, this text, for just a moment. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you to make a change. I, I don't suggest that you write in the pew Bibles, but when you get back home, or if you have your own Bible with you, you should, make, you should write this one in. 432. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. So far, what verse 32 has said is that according to Hellenistic 
philosophical notions of friendship, the early church is a community of true friends. These are the ideals. Friends have all things in common. Common tapas in Greek philosophy. But it continues, verse 33. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Period. This is what I want to ask you to change. In the Greek, verse 33 is not the end of a sentence. In verse 34, it is connected to verse 34 by the conjunction gar, for. And therefore, verses 33 and 34 should be read as follows. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I don't know why English translations do that. Uh, At least the RSV and NRSV do it. Um, and it, it has the effect of disconnecting the claim from the warrant. The power of the testimony to resurrection is confirmed by the empirical fact that within the church there is not a needy person among them. That's the logic of the sentence. They did this because the Holy Spirit was poured out in their midst, and by sharing their possessions they fulfilled the covenant commandment given to Israel in Deuteronomy 15, Open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. If we ask then how God's resurrection power is to be embodied in the life of the church, the book of Acts gives a clear if unsettling answer. Through practices of sharing our wealth with those in need. This sharing is often described in the New Testament epistles under the heading of hospitality, the welcoming of strangers. By welcoming, the New Testament writers meant the concrete sharing of goods with those in need, particularly when those in need are strangers to us, not merely our own friends or our own kin. If the Spirit of God moves the church in the U.S. in the 21st century to preach resurrection with power, one of the signs accompanying our preaching and confirming its truth will be that the church will become known as a community that shares our possessions with the poor among us. Third practice of resurrection I'm going to talk about this one a little more briefly as I see the time running. One of the most striking aspects of the New Testament's vision of resurrection power is Paul's vision of the church as a community in which the barrier between Jew and Gentile is broken down, a community in which ethnicity has ceased to matter, a community in which all who are in Christ share fellowship at one table. So the third practice of resurrection that I'm speaking of is reconciliation at one table across racial and ethnic lines. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul tells the story of his confrontation with Peter at Antioch after Peter had withdrawn from table fellowship with uncircumcised Gentile believers. Peter used to eat with Gentiles, but when challenged by some of his colleagues from Jerusalem to maintain a clearer public posture of separate ethnic identity, he withdrew. So there was no longer one table, but two. And in describing the waffling of Peter and Barnabas, Paul says, they were not walking straight. Orthopodusin is the Greek word, orthopodusin. The Greek word that Greek root that gives us the English word orthopedics. They weren't walking straight towards the truth of the gospel. This formulation implies that the truth of the gospel is necessarily embodied in the fellowship of one table with Jews and Gentiles seated together 
acknowledging one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one people of God. The one table where circumcised and uncircumcised sit together in love is a sign and foretaste of new creation. That's why I say that the practice of having different races eat together at one table is a practice of resurrection. It proleptically embodies the truth of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Thus Isaiah 25. All peoples feasting together at a great dinner where death no longer holds sway. That is a sign of the resurrection. That's why both Paul and the book of Revelation echo this passage from Isaiah as ways of speaking about Christ's victory over death. Wherever we see Christians trying to rebuild walls of separation in the church, walls that separate people along ethnic or cultural lines, we can be sure that the resurrection is not being faithfully proclaimed. On the other hand, the history of the church provides numerous impressive testimonies of the power of the gospel to break down this wall of separation between races and cultures. One of the most remarkable stories of this kind from recent history emerged from the bloody conflict in Rwanda, where in 1994, members of the Hutu tribe carried out mass murders of the Tutsi tribe. According to one account, at the town of Ruhanga, a group of more than 13,000 Christians had gathered for refuge. They were of various denominations, Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Pentecostals, Baptists, and others. According to the account of a later witness on the scene, quote, when the militias came, they ordered the Hutus and Tutsis to separate themselves by tribe. The people refused and declared that they were all one in Christ. And for that, they were all killed, gunned down en masse, and dumped into mass graves. It's a disturbing story, but it's also a compelling witness to the power of the gospel to overcome ethnic division. Paul would have regarded these Rwandans, these Rwandan Christians, as martyrs, as faithful witnesses to the truth of the gospel. Having been made one in Christ through baptism, they preferred to die rather than to deny the grace of God. And so they died, trusting in the hope of resurrection, trusting that they would finally come to the banquet where all tears are wiped away. In the face of such impressive witnesses, how can we let our disputes and differences over more trivial matters divide the church? The church's witness to racial reconciliation at one table is a particularly vivid expression of our commission as ambassadors of Christ, proclaiming resurrection and appealing to all to be reconciled to God in visible communities of interracial sharing. Finally, the fourth practice of resurrection I want to mention is Sabbath keeping. This is the practice that provides the resources and training to sustain all the other practices through which we proclaim resurrection. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Of all the Ten Commandments, I would guess that this is the one most consistently violated with the least reflection by our churches. The world has become a 24-7 whirl of all-night grocery stores and restaurants, 24-hour tech support for our technological addictions, 
24-hour cable TV, Sunday shopping and errand running, and for many of us in professional jobs, a chance to catch up on all the paperwork we weren't able to do during the week. We seek to stretch our time, but ever more it seems to be stretching us. We're never out of reach of cell phone, email, and all the other devices that flood our lives with a nonstop stream of obligations, connections, and titillations. I don't know about you, I find myself increasingly simply drowning in email, simply unable to keep up with its sheer volume. There's never any time to be quiet, never any time to rest, never any time to reflect on how the world is conforming us to its mold and its pace. Some of you of a certain age may remember the musical review, Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. In that show, there's a song about a carousel. It begins very slowly, like the carousel <coughs> in an amusement park starting up, and the actors move about the stage very slowly as they begin to sing, we're on a carousel, a crazy carousel, and up we go around again, we go around, da, da, da. I don't know the rest of the song. But as the number proceeds, the tempo gradually increases and increases and increases until the performers are singing breathlessly and flinging themselves about frantically in an effort to keep up with the ever-accelerating speed of a carousel careening out of control until finally the song, like a runaway vehicle hitting a wall, lurches to a stop. And the singers collapse, strewn about the stage. The song is a parable of a world out of control, caught in a cycle of perpetual motion that exhausts and finally destroys all who are trapped within the machine. That is what the Sabbath is designed to resist. You will recall that the two different versions of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament give two different reasons for observing Sabbath. The version in Exodus 20 says we should observe it because God rested on the seventh day after making the world in the first six days. So the first reason for Sabbath-keeping is to be conformed to the life of God. By resting on the Sabbath, we conform the rhythm of our existence to the rhythm that God has designed and exemplified for us. But Scripture also gives a second reason for keeping the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy 5, after the commandment to rest from work on the Sabbath, we are given this reason, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath day is a day of liberation, a day that proclaims our freedom from slavery. Only free people can stop working. Slaves have to keep slaving or face the master's whip. But we're free at last, and the Sabbath is a gracious gift from God to symbolize that freedom and give us a day for rest and pleasure. There's no word more needful than this for our frantic, crazy carousel culture. That is why Jews and Christians everywhere are rediscovering the liberating joy of Shabbat, but what does all this have to do with preaching resurrection? Just this. The Jewish tradition has always understood that the Sabbath not only looks backward to the seventh day of creation, but also looks forward to the life of the world to come. The eschatological rest of the life of the world to come. It's that eschatological rest that the letter to the Hebrews speaks about so eloquently. Within the framework of this present life, it is a sign, the Sabbath is a sign pointing to the eschatological rest of the people of God when God will renew the world. That is why Sabbath is a sign of resurrection. 
It's only within the last few months that my wife and I have begun to celebrate this practice with a certain chagrined amazement that something so plain had eluded us before. I commend it to you. The Spirit is speaking to the churches. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But as people who live in light of the resurrection, we celebrate not the seventh day of the week, but the eighth, the day marking the resurrection, the beginning of the new creation. Our rest on this day is a sign of the liberating power of the God who brings life out of death and makes all things new. Well, I could go on, but this is enough for now. I offer these four practices of resurrection to you as a provisional discernment, a proposal about some of the most crucial ways in which our common life, if shaped by the biblical witness, might prefigure and proclaim the resurrection. Here's the list in brief. Peacemaking, sharing possessions, reconciliation at one table, Sabbath-keeping. That will do for a start. By the power of the resurrection of Jesus, let us be the church in which these practices are embodied, presenting our bodies to God in such a way that we become a sign and foretaste of the life of the world to come. Before we close, though, I can't resist one final word about John Henry and Claudia Williams. I've been having some fun here at their expense. But in retrospect, I'm moved by that oil-stained scrap of paper. Recall what it said. This is what we want, to be able to be together in the future, even if it is only a chance. When I read those words, I couldn't help recalling Paul's response to the Thessalonian believers who were also confronting the death of loved ones. Here's what he wrote to them. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have died. Paul goes on to explain that the dead in Christ will rise first and be gathered into a great reunion with those who are left alive, and so they will be together forever with Christ and with one another. At the conclusion of the passage, Paul writes simply, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice what Paul doesn't say to the grieving Thessalonians. He doesn't say, your loved ones are already in heaven with Jesus. Instead, he holds out the promise of the resurrection of the body, based on the sure ground of Christ's resurrection. That is the ground of our comfort. If the church had done a better job of clearly and confidently preaching that message, and if the church's practices had more faithfully embodied the signs of that hope, I can't help wondering whether John Henry and Claudia Williams, longing to be together again in the body with their dad, would be less likely to seek the cold comfort of cryonics. But regardless of what the Williams family might or might not do, here is the bottom line. The same message of resurrection that turns the world upside down is, in the end, also the only true answer to the world's longing, the only true source of comfort in the face of death. Therefore, in all our preaching and teaching, let us comfort one another with these words. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. Thanks be to God. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth.
wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.